0: Please turn with me to the text for this morning's sermon, Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. We will be picking up on Paul's testimony before the Roman governor of his ministry, his own testimony of how he ministered the Word. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. Paul speaking, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In the preceding two weeks now, we have looked at two units of Scripture in this passage Verses 18 to 21 was a look back on Paul's ministry in Ephesus when he circulated among the elders there and he talked about how he served them with uh, toil and with tears and trials and loneliness, giving himself as an example to the elders now. And then last week we looked at verses uh, 22 to 25 and instead of looking back, he looked forward into the future and he said, I don't really care what happens to my life. If only I can finish the race that God has given me to run and uh, finish the ministry that He has appointed for me to do. So there was a backward look, there was a forward look, and now we come today to two verses, 26 and 27, as he continues His address to these elders in Miletus from Ephesus. And it is, in a sense, another look backward. About his faithful ministry there, but it's also a comment about his present innocence with regard to those people. But I want to, I want to kind of put a parenthesis in here and draw out a lesson from something that surprises me about the way Paul is talking. We are over halfway through the message when we get to verse 28. In verse 28, which is what we'll look at next Sunday, is the beginning of the exhortation and the warning. Up till now, what has he done? He has done nothing but talk about himself. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that just struck me. You're halfway through your message, and you've talked about yourself the whole time. Now, I love Jonathan Edwards preacher from 250 years ago in New England. I love his theology, and I love his preaching, and I get tremendous help from reading his sermons. There are 1,200 of them in the Beinecke Library at Yale University, and uh, if you go there, you can read them in the original. I held Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in my very own little hand. and It's about that size. You read those 1,200 sermons like John Gerstner has done through, you may find a half a dozen passing references to the man Jonathan Edwards and his life. He was so jealous of exalting the glory of God in his preaching and effacing Edwards that he never referred to himself in his preaching virtually. And I think he made a mistake. I think that was a mistake. This message here is over half autobiography. Now, I don't think that means that every time a preacher preaches or a teacher teaches, there should be 50% autobiography. That would be an artificial inference because there are other sermons in Acts that don't have 50%. But you don't find sermons that don't have something of the preacher in them. I call it the testimony dimension. You track the word testimony or testify through this sermon, you find it about three times, depending on what translation you're using. But there is a testimony dimension to biblical preaching. And so I think I would want to infer, and I see some of the ministers here who were at the conference, and I think this applies really to your teaching in Sunday school, and probably to all of your testimonies to your friends and family. I think I would draw out the inference and say, almost every time you open your mouth about biblical truth, there should be something of you in it. Let something of God's work in your own life show. Because there's power in personal truth that doesn't exist in abstract truth and it needs to be combined and so that's a that's a parenthesis i wanted to put in here that uh i feel and i hope you feel that when we talk about the word we shouldn't be overly zealous about hiding our ho- our soul and our heart and our family and our lives and our struggles I get a lot more benefit, frankly, out of reading Edwards than I do out of most experience-oriented stuff today. Uh, But I don't want to miss the biblical implication that when the apostles preached, they said something about what God had done in their lives. Close parenthesis. He isn't rambling on about himself aimlessly. He is trying to build his life ...into the elders whom he'll never see again, and he's trying to vindicate the warnings that he's going to give them in just a few minutes next week in our exposition. Let's look now at these two verses. He comes having gone uh, backward in verses 18 to 21, forward in verses 22 to 25. He goes backward again to talk about his ministry and its present implication for his own soul... He says in verse 26, therefore, I testify to you this day. Notice the word testify that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Now, I want to make three observations about this phrase. I am innocent of the blood of all of you. First, this blood here stands for being eternally lost. Now, let me try to show you why I think that's true. What he's saying is, I am innocent of any of you who are lost. It will not be my responsibility. The blood won't be on my head. Now, my first reason for thinking that's what blood means is that if you say it means physical death, the text makes no sense. Because if I were to say... Uh, your physical dying is not my fault because I taught you the whole counsel of God. That won't work. In fact, you're more likely to get killed because I taught you the whole counsel of God. You're not protected from being killed because I gave you the whole counsel of God. You start living according to the whole counsel of God, you will incur more physical danger, not less. So that's my first reason for saying it doesn't mean physical death. My second reason is that there are two parallel texts in Acts, which you can look at with me, and then I think you'll see clearly why I think this. The first one is in Acts 18.6, which is just a page back, maybe, in your Bibles. Acts 18.6 describes Paul's rejection by the Jewish community in Corinth. Here's what it says in verse 6. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, he's innocent in that text, not because he gave them the whole counsel of God, but because they wouldn't let him. So you can be innocent in two ways. if Somebody lets you. You discharge your responsibility by telling them what they need to know. Or if they won't let you, then their blood is not on your head either. But now the thing I want you to see here is the term blood on head is used here to describe the situation after Paul has been rejected. Now, the other parallel that's going to tie in here and finish the argument is found in chapter 13, verse 46, if you want to look at it. Chapter 13, verse 46. Again, Paul is preaching to the Jewish community and they are rejecting him in Antioch of Pisidia. And in verse 46, it describes Luke describes what happened. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it from you and judge yourselves, here comes now, unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, put the two texts beside each other. Acts 18.6 says, you thrust it from you, your blood is on your own heads. Acts 13.46 says, you thrust it from you, you judge yourselves worthy of eternal life. Conclusion. Blood being on your head means loss of eternal life. Now I come back to chapter 20, verse 26, and I conclude that when he says, I am innocent of the blood of you all, he means, if any of you is finally lost, I've done all I could do, and it isn't my fault. I'm innocent. Your damnation will be holy upon your own head. That's the first thing to notice here. Eternal life or eternal death are at stake in where the blood rests. Second observation. It is possible for us to be guilty of another person's lostness. It is possible for us. To be guilty of another person's lostness. Now, if that weren't true, Paul's statement would be pointless, wouldn't it? He protests, I'm not guilty of the blood of anyone among them. Which must mean, had I done something differently, I might be guilty of the blood of some of them. And so I infer it is possible to be guilty of somebody else's lostness and damnation. which raises two very, very practical questions. One, under what conditions would you and I be responsible or guilty of another person's loss of eternal life? And second question, if we are, what does that mean for us? What becomes of us? My answer to the first question now Under what conditions would you and I be guilty of another person's lostness? Would be this. We would be guilty of another person's losing eternal life if we failed to tell them what they need to know when the Holy Spirit has urged us to. We would be guilty of another person's lostness if we fail to tell them what they need to know if the Holy Spirit has urged us to. Now, I put it like that because you are not responsible for everybody. I have a cousin in Ohio somewhere that you are not responsible for. All right. Well, then, who are you responsible for? Who might God call you to account for? And me. Me. And I would say, if the Holy Spirit urges you, moves you towards somebody, and you don't tell them what they need to know, their blood is on your head. I'll tell you where I get that idea. I get it from Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Luke describes Paul's second missionary journey. And in verse 6, he says, speaking of Paul's missionary party, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to speak the word in Asia. Now, Asia is where... Ephesus is. He's talking to Ephesian elders here in Acts 20. Asia is where Ephesus is, which means that on the second missionary journey, it was not time for Asia or Ephesus. And had anyone in Ephesus died in unbelief, it would not have been Paul's fault. Because the Holy Spirit said to him, go there, not to Ephesus. I infer from that little transaction that today, if the Holy Spirit urges you to go there, and you go there, the blood of that person, if they die in unbelief, is on your head and mine. And that leads into the second question very urgently, doesn't it? what does that mean for us if somebody's blood is on my head well the text doesn't say does it? it doesn't tell us it's pretty serious it sounds serious to me i think it ought to make us really think hard about The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the people we might have neglected to speak to that the Holy Spirit has urged us toward. But even though the text doesn't give an answer, let me give you an answer that I think I can justify from the wider teaching of Scripture. It would go like this. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin, including the sin Of having someone's blood upon your head. But. Just as with every other sin. If you go on. Day after day. Week after week. Month after month year after year, hardening yourself to the voice of the Holy Spirit, very likely, you will prove that the Holy Spirit does not dwell within you. That you do not belong to Christ. And all the people to whom, or whom you've neglected to talk to, their lostness will compound your own damnation. You see... Biblical teaching is not such that you can say, Oh, I prayed to receive Jesus once, and now the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin, including all the dozens and dozens of people whose blood is on my head. So no problem, and I'll just keep living that way. I'll just keep heaping the blood of people on my head by ignoring the voice of the Holy Spirit and saying nothing to anybody. Now, if that is the way you go on, The Bible has some pretty strong things to say about the sin against the Holy Spirit and has some pretty strong things to say about a fruitless branch being broken off and has some pretty strong things to say about those who live according to the flesh and do not follow the Holy Spirit and prove to be children of God. And so I warn you, don't go on in a pattern of resisting the Holy Spirit because it could mean your ultimate ruin. So that's the second thing we see in verse 26. It is possible for us to be guilty of another person's final loss. All of us, in fact, in this room, I would guess, do have somebody's blood upon our head. I do. Apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, there would be no hope for me if consistency of witness were the final arbiter. But I know that if that is my planned future course, I will make shipwreck of saving faith. The third thing to observe in this verse is that it is possible to be innocent of another person's loss of eternal life. The second thing was it's possible to be guilty The third thing is, it's possible to be innocent of someone's lostness. Paul says that very thing. I am innocent of the blood of you all. Now, big question then. Under what circumstances can we say that? Now, I want to zero right in on the eldership now, because that's who he's talking to here, and I'm one of those and want to... weigh this heavily for myself, and there are pastors in our group here and deacons who are in the role of the eldership at Bethlehem. What must we do in order that we might be able to say, I'm innocent of the blood of everyone at Bethlehem? Now, let me clarify something here. We heard an admonition at the pastor's conference, and it's a good one that there is sometimes way too much difference between clergy and laity, and that the professionalizing of the clergy gives the impression to the lay people that the clergy are to do the work of the ministry, and you are to be passive receivers all the time. That's a very unbiblical notion, and it's a good admonition and warning. But it would be a great mistake to... infer from that, that I, as one of the teaching elders of this church, don't have more responsibility than you before God for your faith. Because it says in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, submit to your leaders who will have to give an account for your faith. And it says in James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers because you will be judged with a greater judgment. That is a clear, resounding New Testament teaching that the pastoral staff will have a harder time of it at the bar of God than you will. I will be asked questions you will not be asked about the faith and life of this church. Now let me go back and qualify again, lest there be a misunderstanding. The Bible clearly says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Every one of you is priests to God. You are all priests to God, men and women. You are priests to God in that you must exhort one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, protect one another help one another, love one another. You are responsible for each other's faith. God will ask you questions like that at the judgment day. But now I'm going to go back and reassert the truth again. James 3.1 means something. Let not many of you become teachers because there will be a greater judgment. Why? Greater responsibility. You should pray for me. And your deacons and your Sunday school teachers, to the degree that you have some authority and teaching role in the church, to that degree, God will hold us more accountable and our judgment will be more severe. The fire will be hotter when we pass through it to see what is burned up on that last day. Therefore, the question is, what would John Piper and the deacons and all these pastors here have to do so that when our last sermon is given in this pulpit, I would be able to look you right in the eye and say, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Now, it's remarkable what Paul says in answer to that question. Verse 27 is the answer, of course. The reason he's not guilty of the blood of any of the Ephesian elders, or I think the Ephesian church, is this. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Isn't that remarkable that he could have said many other things about his ministry? He could have said, I loved you. I was patient with you. I wept tears over you. And he chose this to say, I taught you everything that needed to be taught about the counsel of God. It was whole and complete. That's that's high priority, isn't it? Now, I want to draw out three inferences from this verse. Number one, knowing the whole counsel of God helps people get to heaven. Knowing the whole counsel of God helps people get to heaven. Now, look at it very carefully, and you'll see why I'm saying it this carefully or uh, modestly. I am not saying you must know the whole counsel of God to get to heaven. You don't have to know the whole counsel of God to get to heaven. The thief on the cross did not know the whole counsel of God. He knew a little teeny fraction of the counsel of God. He knew enough. And he got saved and went to paradise when he died. So I want to be very modest and not claim more than this text teaches because what it teaches is enough to keep us busy for the next 50 years. Even though the text cannot be made to teach that you must know the whole counsel of God in order to be saved, it does say that if an elder... Doesn't teach the whole counsel of God. He might be the accomplice of somebody's destruction. Now what do you make of that? For the importance of knowing the whole counsel of God. Here's what I make of it. It helps to know it. That's the least you can say. It helps people get to heaven to know it. Because if an elder doesn't teach it. He might be an accomplice of their going to hell. Does that make sense? It helps. That's modest and it's massive. Knowing the whole counsel of God helps people persevere in faith. And those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, this is just awesome in its implications for our Christian education program. Staggering in its implications. Let me give you a couple implications for what it ought to mean at Bethlehem and is beginning to mean over the years. Number one, it means that the leadership, that is, those who are charged with being the doctrinal guardians of the church, that is, the elders, according to Titus 1.9, must have a unified conception of the whole counsel of God. At Bethlehem. If one elder says, this is the counsel of God, and another elder says, this is the counsel of God, and another elder says, well, I think this is the counsel of God, and they're all going in those directions, how in the world at the end of the day will they be able to say, and we together, having given you three different directions, are innocent of the blood of all of you, because we did not shrink back from telling you the whole counsel of God. I put a tremendously high premium on theological harmony on the pastoral staff. It is not up for grabs. We will have a theological hole because you cannot sound the trumpet of God. With a clear, compelling note. When one person goes that way, and another person goes that way, and that way, and that way. About the components of the whole council of God. And I just want to see the great theological harmony that holds us spread out through our elders, our Sunday school teachers. I have no desires for there to be anything but a consistent whole in the teaching of the whole counsel of God, running through all the teaching ministries of our church. The degree to which a confused, incomplete, uncertain vision of the counsel of God is presented by the elders, to that degree will we not be able to say, your blood is not on our heads. Here's another implication. Our children... Our children, greatest resource for tomorrow. Our children and our curriculum and our teaching. Every single story, every little modeling clay, every picture, every club, every game should be thought through to the end that it clarifies and drives home the whole counsel of God. Our children from the time they can talk until the time they die. Should be taught the whole counsel of God. With everything being fit in. And mind you. The children set the agenda on this and have to be told not to ask those questions. We have to train people not to ask the big questions. Adults learn not to meddle in high things. Children start asking the big questions. We have to train them not to do that. What I mean by the whole counsel of God in Christian education is that everything in our Sunday school, in our clubs, in our 2020 groups, should be answering questions like, why did God elect His bride before the foundation of the world? Why did He create mankind in His own image? Why did He permit the fall? Why did He elect Israel and work with Israel for 20 years? Uh, uh, 2,000 years? Why did he give the law? Why did he give the tabernacle? Why did he give the sacrificial system? Why did Jesus Christ come and, and be born as a a, a a man in a in a stable of a virgin? Why did he lead, lead a sinless life? Why did he do miracles? Why did he preach the kingdom? Why did he die? Why did he rise again on the third day? Is he coming again? Why is he coming again? What will happen when he comes? How is God fulfilling his purposes in the world? To gather a people from every people and tongue and tribe and nation. What does it mean that he calls people? That he regenerates people? That he sanctifies people? That he glorifies people? How then should we live in this fallen world in view of these great aspects of the whole council of God, what is it that makes all of these things fit together in what Paul calls a whole council of God? I'm just afraid that uh, we slip into patterns of taking a little story, from the Bible, and just kind of drawing out some moralistic conclusion from it, like share your bread or something. Listen, children can learn massive visions of God. Children are ready. They are open. They can learn so much. And the evangelical church in America, as far as its Sunday schools go, set the standards too low. That's a challenge now to us in in the days to come. We need a children's minister. We'll have an interim, Lord willing, if you vote for Jennifer, until we find one. And oh, what a person that needs to be. Pray hard about that. While I'm saying something here about children and education, the bookstore that's set up down there through lunch has a lot of good and helpful things to look at. You might want to just walk through there before you leave today. Okay? The first point on this verse 27 then was, knowing the whole counsel of God helps people get to heaven. Second, biblical Christians hunger to know the whole counsel of God. Biblical Christians want to be taught the whole counsel of God. Now, this text clearly teaches, I want to show you how I get that from the text. I hope it's obvious, but maybe it's not. The text clearly teaches that elders are deficient and may be guilty of someone's destruction to the degree that they don't declare the whole counsel of God. Well, it must follow, mustn't it? that the people of the church would be guilty if they don't want the whole counsel of God. I mean, I can't see it any other way in this verse. If I'm guilty before God for your destiny, if I don't share the whole counsel of God, how could you be anything but guilty if you're sitting there right now saying, I don't care about the whole counsel of God. You are guilty. And I know there are people that feel resistance to doctrine. And I just plead with you right now to repent. The Bible says you're guilty. You may be guilty of your own blood, or you may be guilty of other people's blood by implication in the way you lead your life. Biblical Christians want the Bible to be taught in its fullness for their soul. They want the bread of life. They are like children, according to 1 Peter 2, who want milk. And that text does not mean milk is basic doctrine. You go back and read 1 Peter 2, it says, Like newborn babies desire milk, you desire the Word. All the Word. The whole Word. The whole counsel of God. And so the second implication of this verse is, please, if you find in your heart a resistance to study or to learning or to reading the Bible, seeking how it all fits together in the whole counsel of God, repent, pray that God will lift off of your heart this awful spirit of doctrinal indifference which is so unbiblical. And the final thing that this verse implies... Is that elders should be courageous in teaching the whole counsel of God. And I get the word courageous from the phrase, you see it there in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you. Now why would he say that? Answer, there are some things in the whole counsel of God that you're tempted to shrink from saying. Isn't that, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a necessary inference? He's tempted to shrink back because there's some things in this whole council that are evidently going to be hard to say or hard to hear. Now, what might that be? I thought of three possibilities. One, something that's hard to understand. Pastors don't like to admit their ignorance. It's not fun to say, I don't understand this. And I think that's what we might have to say. In other words, we would say, the Bible teaches this and teaches this, but I can't quite make the connection. I'm sorry. I'll study hard. You pray for me, but right now I can't. And so that's one reason you might shrink back. Things are hard to understand. That's what second Peter said about Paul's teaching. It's hard to understand. Second, there are some teachings in the whole counsel of God that are uncomplimentary to human nature. The doctrine of sin. The doctrine of God's sovereign predestination to life. They don't compliment us. And people find their egos being attacked by biblical doctrines and there's resistance. Pastors don't like to get resistance, so we shrink back. And the third thing is obedience. Part of the whole counsel of God is you must live a certain way, not just head stuff. Part of God's counsel is forsake fornication. Lay up treasures in heaven, not on the earth. Love your enemy. Don't return evil for evil. And pastors might see people getting upset at him about how they handle their money or their sex life or their home life or their children. And he doesn't want trouble in the church and so he shrinks back. And so the third lesson is, this verse teaches that a responsible elder who will not have the blood of his people on his head must be courageous. Now, I close by simply pointing out what we said at the beginning, that Paul had spent a lot of time on his life, and now we've been talking a lot about doctrine. And I want to put the two together right in our our text here. When Paul says, I did not shrink back, what he means is, I'm a certain kind of person. And when he says, I taught you the whole counsel of God, he says, I teach a certain kind of doctrine. It's got unity. There's a hole there. I want you to get a handle on it. I want you to crawl inside that hole and know your way around. I'm a certain kind of person. I've got a certain kind of doctrine. And that's my vision for Bethlehem. A kind of person. And a kind of doctrine. And for Paul, they go hand in hand. You can't separate them. If you try to become a kind of person and neglect the counsel of God, you will be frothy, flippant, thin, fluffy, shallow, superficial, ineffective. If you try to go for doctrine and don't care about becoming a loving, tender-hearted, broken, courageous person, you'd be cold, angular, Ineffective because of the harshness and dryness and barrenness of your intellectual preponderance. But if you put the two together like Paul does, and if a church puts the two together, then you've got power. And that's what we want for God's namesake.